Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Sina Bazilahiki. And I'm H. Bosch Jr. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with testimony from the Senate hearings on the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act by Judith Enoch, the former EPA regional administrator. Then we have a labor story by roaming labor correspondent, Mr. Willie Terry. Later on, I, bring, I will be bringing us a Triple E segment with returning guest Tatum Hughes, who will talk about her work as a nurse. After that, Bria Barthow reports from last weekend's Interfaith Holiday Justice and Peace Circle at Freedom Square, a great day for all, and speaks with organizations and participants. Finally, I again, me, myself, brings us another dose of Triple E's with Bill Bastock, on justice reform. But first, hear the headlines. Okay. A bill introduced by Hudson Valley Assemblywoman Dee Dee Barrett would create a mapping tool so local leaders can proactively pinpoint where renewable energy projects might best fit into their communities. The bill was created in response to the Shepherds Run controversy, an ongoing battle between a Texas-based renewable energy developer and a small town in Columbia County over the sitting of a solar farm that has led to a lawsuit challenging how renewable energy projects are approved throughout the state. The Board of Regents wants all four-year-olds to have free preschool by 2030, and then expand that to all three-year-olds by 2035. In a budget request to the state, the board asked for $1.1 million for staff to redesign preschool funding. The goal would be to make, a, make it accessible to all four-year-olds by 2030. Access issues include trouble with transportation and limited space at existing preschools, as well as difficulty making their preschool accessible to those with disabilities. The Board of Regents asked the state for $20 million for a preschool inclusivity grant that would be awarded to districts that provide services to four-year-olds four with disabilities. The Times Union reports that state lawmakers are considering giving themselves a pay raise while possibly limiting their outside income following a recent court ruling that they believe provides them with the ability to do those things. The deliberations could lead to a special session next week. Lawmakers presently pay themselves a base salary of $110,000 for a part-time position, including being in session for only six months of the year. Say that again, part-time. Wow. The Gazette reports that city police and other law enforcement agencies are conducting an enhanced search along the Mohawk River Thursday for missing Schenectady 14-year-old Samantha Humphrey, who has been missing for three weeks. That's it for the headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is, our content is produced by volunteers to learn how you can contribute, 
go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call us at 518-272-2390. On Thursday, December 15th, U.S. Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon sponsored the Break Free from Plastics Pollution Act, convened its first major hearing on plastics ever to take place in the U.S. Senate. We hear the testimony of former EPA regional administrator Judith Ank, founder of Beyond Plastics, with Mark Dunley. The United States Senate held a hearing on plastics on Thursday. Senator Merkley of Oregon, chair of the committee holding the hearing, is a lead sponsor of the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act of 2021. This bill sets forth requirements and incentives to reduce the production of a variety of products and materials, including plastics, and increases efforts to collect, recycle, or compost products and materials. Judith Ank of Beyond Plastics was one of the um, members of the panel uh, who testified. Good morning, Senators. What an honor to be with you, and thank you for holding this hearing. It is so timely and so vitally important that we get to solutions. I'm Judith Ank. I use she, her pronouns, former EPA regional administrator, founder of Beyond Plastics, and I'm at the, on the faculty at Bennington College in Vermont. On the off chance that you're not riveted by my 22-page testimony today, I want to direct you to page 8 with a great cartoon by Liza Donnelly. There's a guy or a gal uh, looking out the window with their daughter saying, someday, daughter, all of this will be yours, and you'll just have to deal. I included that cartoon because it's a reminder of what is at stake that we cannot leave our kids and our grandchildren with this enormous problem of plastic pollution. There are solutions. I can go on forever with solutions we can grab off the shelf today. There are also false solutions being promoted by the plastics industry, which I hope we can get into, which is chemical recycling or um, advanced recycling. You all know you open a package that you order on Amazon, for instance, it arrives really overpackaged, so much stuff you don't need. And in fact, today, the prestigious national group Oceana put out a report on how much plastic packaging is produced by Amazon. Amazon, we need you to do much, much better. Oceana also commissioned a poll, 82% of voters want you to adopt laws to reduce plastics. The poll results were bipartisan, Republicans, Democrats, independents. When I served at the EPA, I met many people who were climate change deniers. I have never met a plastic pollution denier because the evidence is everywhere. You walk down the street, you see plastic bags in the trees. Um, and I also want to... Um, go on the record by saying there are some uses of plastic, but we don't see medical waste hanging from trees. And medical waste, by the way, is a small percentage of plastic production. Cars are more efficient if they have some plastic, making them lighter. I don't see car bumpers in my local park. I see a lot of single-use plastics. This is a climate change issue. Um, my organization did a report called The New Coal, Plastics and Climate Change. We looked at production, use, and disposal of plastics, 
and learned that in the next decade, greenhouse gas emissions from plastics will exceed that of coal. I support recycling. I started my town's recycling program over 30 years ago. Everyone should keep recycle, recycling metal, glass, cardboard, aluminum. However, plastic recycling has been an abysmal failure. It clocks in at under 10%. And I quickly want to explain why. If you take a newspaper and you put it in the recycling bin, it can get recycled into a new newspaper. There are many, many different plastic resins. As Dr. Myers said, thousands of different plastic uh, chemical additives in plastics and many different colors. You, if in your own home, your washing machine probably has on top of it a bright orange uh, detergent, hard plastic. In your refrigerator, you have a clear um, squeezable plastic. Those two cannot be recycled together. And when the plastics industry says they can use chemical recycling and, and create new plastics, that's not true. What they're mostly producing is fossil fuel. And that's the last thing we need, is more climate-warming fossil fuel. Also, it's just not dealing with the large percentage of plastics that are out there. This is very much an environmental justice issue. Uh, plastics are produced in environmental justice communities, places like Cancer Alley in Louisiana, where there's a concentration of petrochemical facilities. And these communities, typically low-income communities of color, are so overburdened on both the production side and then because so little plastics actually get recycled when it comes to disposal, it's these same communities that are homes to landfills and incinerators. We need to cut plastic production by 50% in the next 10 years. We can do it, uh, pass the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act, pass the National Bottle Bill, pass a sensible law called the Plastic um, Reduction and Recycling Act, also known as EPR, which has been introduced in, in state legislatures around the country. We don't need a magical breakthrough. We need reduction, refill and reuse. And if you absolutely cannot reduce or refill and reuse, then rely on paper, metal, glass. Get the toxics out, particularly out of the paper, and make sure that that material is made from recycled content and are easily recyclable. Local governments are drowning in plastics that you can't recycle. If you are a fiscal conservative, you should embrace plastics reduction. We've got to be honest. Plastics recycling isn't working. It's having a devastating impact on health in the communities where it's manufactured. Reduction is the way to go. The federal government could start using real dishes in all of its facilities rather than single-use plastics. Schools need funding to install dishwashing equipment to stop serving children on single-use, for instance, polystyrene trays. How about public um, drinking waters, every, uh, public water fountains everywhere you go so you can fill this up rather than wasting your money on plastic water bottles? Funding is key. Um, when you look at infrastructure, I urge you to think about putting funding for states and local governments into a reuse 
refill infrastructure. Right now, local governments can't control everything that's coming at them, but packaging companies have choices to make. Are they going to provide sustainable packaging or more and more multi-material packaging that is either littered, buried, or burned? You and I don't want to use so much plastic, but we have little choice, which is why uh, extended producer responsibility with teeth goes a long, long way. Senator Merkley asked Ms. Ank about how well the use of symbols with numbers on them on plastics is impacted on recycling. And it doesn't work because plastic recycling is a failure. It's only 5 to 6% recycling. So consumers are always flipping it over. The, the numbers seem to get smaller and smaller. You really should only put number one and number two into your recycling bin. That leaves the majority of plastics as non-recyclable. It's, it's even worse when companies put the iconic recycling logo on their packaging, a plastic bag, film, and that'll contaminate the waste stream. In fact, the California Attorney General, Rob Banta, has launched an investigation around deceptive advertising around plastic recycling. So people want to recycle. Americans, you know, really want to get it going. But other than bottle bills, where you have the deposit, the materials kept separate, you get a high recycling rate. Other than plastics from bottle bill states, plastics recycling is a dead end. We should just call it that and move on to reduction. Uh, Ms. Hank, just, uh, I went to a hardware store recently, and I needed uh, to buy a hammer. And I was fascinated to see that a hammer, which is designed for beating up on things, was wrapped at the hardware store in a plastic bag. Are we not using plastic in all kinds of settings where it's absolutely unnecessary? Yes, and it's because the company that packaged it has no skin in the game in terms of what happens to it after you buy the product. They will use different materials. They're not thinking in a circular way. So that's why we need strong, uh, some call it extended producer responsibility. I call it packaging reduction and reuse requirements. Just like we have fuel efficiency standards for cars and appliances, we need environmental standards for packaging so things are not so overpackaged. This has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Judith Inc. is a regular on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, and you can find more stories on the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act on our website. Okay, on Friday, June 17th, 2022, Hudson Mohawk Magazine roaming labor correspondent Willie Terry attended a Labor Notes conference virtual workshop entitled A Union Brews at Starbucks. In this labor segment today, Willie shared audio excerpts from the panel discussion about the ongoing struggles to organize Starbucks across the nation. All right, everybody, thank you guys for coming. Um, I know in your program that it says that Daisy is gonna be facilitating this. Um, there was a change, it is now me, and I hope you guys don't mind, all right? <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys, and then, um, so I'll introduce myself. I am Michelle, I'm a Starbucks partner in Mesa, Arizona. Um, 
And um, I'm so excited for you guys to meet this panel if you guys don't know them already. Um, I personally, when I found out, was geeking out that I get to be up here with them. So um, I say we start there and uh, let's go ahead and go down the line and everybody introduce yourself. Hi everybody, my name is Bill Whitmire. I'm a shift supervisor at Starbucks Scottsdale Mayo in Phoenix, Arizona. Hello, my name is Will Westlake. I am a barista in Buffalo, New York at the Camp Road location. Hi, my name is Jazz Brissack. I am a barista at the Elmwood store in Buffalo, which was the first union Starbucks. Hi guys, I'm Layla Dalton. I worked at the same store as Bill Whitmire, Scottsdale and Mayo. I was a supervisor until I was unjustly fired. Hello everyone, my name is Olivia Claypool. I'm a shift supervisor at the store in Overland Park, Kansas. Um, I was recently reinstated, but yeah, fired partner as well. Hi everyone, my name is Kyla Clay. I am a barista at 1304 Commonwealth Avenue, the first store to unionize in Massachusetts by like two seconds. Hi, um, I'm Mason Boykin. My pronouns are he, they. Um, I'm from Jacksonville, Florida, the uh, San Jose and Ricky Drive location. All right, so let's get going. Um, I'm sure quite a bit of you guys know the Starbucks Workers United and the movement, right, that Starbucks is unionizing across the country. Um, so I figured we'd kick it off right from the beginning um, and, and talk to Jazz and ask her why, like, what, why? Why did we start this? <laughs> so this started before I even got to Starbucks. Um, one of the first people to get involved with the campaign got involved while we were actually organizing a different coffee shop chain called Spot Coffee in Buffalo. And her name was Lexi Rizzo. She was a shift supervisor at the Genesee store that voted at the same time and then was certified after um, the NLRB had to sort out some of Starbucks shenanigans. Um, and Lexi had said, you know, two years before the start of the campaign that she wanted to unionize Starbucks and that, you know, she loved her job and she wanted it to be the best that it could possibly be. And her slogan was, we fight for what we love. And I think that that's motivated the campaign from the beginning. Um, the folks who started this and the folks who've carried it across the country have been some of the best and most passionate baristas. All right, and then Kyla, in previous conversations that we've had, I know that you had said that your, you know, your eyes were on Buffalo when, what, in watching what they were doing. So I was curious, watching that, what made your store want to join and file? Yeah, for me, I remember reading in the news, you know, August, October, November, what was going on in Buffalo, and to be very frank, I did not know what a union was, but. I could tell that Starbucks was clearly very afraid of what was happening, and I was infuriated by the way that they were treating the baristas. Um, and so I started Googling, what is a union? Um, and I started learning more, and you know, really the, the spark that, that got that Google search going was anger, but I think that it's the, the continued organizing is really out of love for our coworkers and wanting to have a better workplace and a, 
a recognized voice. Um, so I started reaching out to my first coworker that I reached out to, who's in the crowd today, Ash. Um, I reached out to them because I felt like they were the closest person I had, who could I get, who like who I could get this all started with, and it was really easy to talk to other coworkers because they were also seeing what was happening in the news and they were also really upset with how Starbucks was treating the the baristas in Buffalo, and I think that was really. Um, what helped rally us together so we could stand in solidarity with the partners in Mesa and the partners in Buffalo. And um, that was really what, what kicked it all off. Okay. And Layla, do you want to? Yeah, so um, Starbucks was my first job ever. I started working right when I turned 17. And let's just say from the start, I was thrown in on the floor. I didn't know what was right, what was wrong. and. I mean, my first manager went on a trash run and never came back. So, yeah, literally never came back. And I was a minor. That was my first 10-hour shift, actually, which, according to Starbucks, they care, they care about their partners, their customers, and they say that they would not allow a minor, you know, to not have a lunch, to not go over 12 hours. But they still did that. So from the start, it's been a rough ride, and I never knew what a union was. I never heard the word union. I mean, I know, like, you can unite with people, but it wasn't the same way. And what really started, like, what pushed me is I was told that right after I got out of the hospital that I, I must demote myself if I want to work three days a week for just one month. And they were making me put my education, my mental and physical health before before, I, like they wanted work to be first. And I just realized that I deserved a lot more. And that's when my co-leader who's over here, Bill Whitmire, he came up to me and he's like, you know, we couldn't make a change. There is one thing we can do. Cause I, I kept talking to management. I, t I kept talking to my district manager. And that's when I was like, well, I guess we can start a union cause there's nothing else. And I felt like I had to quit cause they wanted me to put work before my health, my education. And a part of the reason I'm at Starbucks is I get free school. So it doesn't really make sense, but that's really what pushed me. I just feel like we shouldn't feel that we have to put work first because at the end of the day our our health our safety the wage we get everything that matters and they just see us as a body and I realized that right after I started my union and uh, Mesa you're down in, or Mason you're in Florida <laughs> So um, at my original store, the store that I was hired at, it was a cafe location. Um, within my first year of working there, I had been through five managers, store managers. The turnover was like a manager every three months or something like that. Um, this was back in like 2019, 2020. We had thought about it, but it was so far out of our reach, at least we thought. Um, like anytime you'd bring it up, it was, oh, but like we're a right to work state. Like we, we, we can't do that. that. That doesn't happen down here. Um, so it went kind of cold, kind of quiet. And um, my store closed down. I transferred to the store that I'm at now. 
Um, and that was around the time that stuff was, was happening up north. And I, I still had that energy in the back of my mind, but I was like, well, maybe it was just my story where I had those experiences. Because that's what we all hope, right? That it's, it's an isolated event. Um, and so when, when I got to Ricky Drive, um, I, one of the first couple conversations I had with them was about how they had just lost one of their managers because they were fired for the activities that they were doing in the store, telling people you can't discuss your wages on the floor shocking um but and i was like wait a minute so how many managers have you guys had and they told me like four or five within a year and i'm like the turnover is the same everywhere you go like you're 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 having these same experiences that's that's crazy um and one day i was walking across the street to a Publix. It's a grocery store down in the south. Um, and we were converting our tips. And I asked one of my now OC members, um, I just straight up said, like, would you want to organize a union with me? And she was like, hell yeah. <laughs> I was like, you know, the from the south, you know, that, that right to work. Um, mentality that was something that we was really important to me organizing down there there's uh we're unfortunately bred with complacency and it's it's not our fault right it's it's what we're we're forced and learned in school um and so the first store in florida had um filed a petition in tallahassee and i, I january i think late january and i was like oh my god okay so if tallahassee's doing it then like that Yes, Florida, let's go. Um, and so just growing the Southern movement has been really important. Um, we've got stores all over Florida, Alabama, um, the Carolinas and Virginia. So just trying to break that, um, that mentality. I remember one of a conversation I had on the floor one of the first times um, we were we were spitballing ideas. I was like, "Are you guys familiar with the union? Like, have you been seeing what's going on in Buffalo?" And one of my partners was like, "Oh, but we're a right to work state. It'll never happen." And I was like, "Okay, like, I have to nip that in the bud real fast." Um, and it was, it's been difficult, but um, un undoing that, unlearning that, um, those behaviors and, and that mentality, it's it's working. It's it's slowly happening, and we unionized. So. That was uh, from the Starbucks event, a, a union brews at Starbucks by Willie Terry brought us that for the labor bucket. It has been quite a labor year. And this is our last labor bucket for 2022. And for those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. And I'm your host, H. Bosch Jr. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at the Media Sanctuary. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media, Troy, New York. And if you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend because sharing is caring. You can find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Absolutely. Well, well, our next well. guest, our next guest, welcome back all the way from the great state of um, Michigan. I believe that is Lansing, Michigan. We have the opportunity to have Miss 
Tatum Hughes back, friend of the show. How you doing? Welcome. I'm Welcome doing back. great. Thanks for having me back. Well, thank you so much for um, taking time out of your busy schedule during the holidays to uh, come back and uh, speak with us. Okay. Um, as um, you guys may know, uh, Tatum is a nurse for over 23 years, and this is part two of a two-part segment, and we're going to talk further about her career, uh, long and um, uh, celebrated career as a nurse in the uh, Michigan area. So I'm going to dig right in. Um, tell us the knowledge um, um, you've learned from being a nurse over the years. Um, the knowledge that I've learned from being a nurse over the years is, you know, how to take care of myself, how to eat healthy, how to, um, you know, just go about taking care of myself. I did learn some things from some, from some great nurses that I wanted to share. And hopefully a nurse somewhere will hear this and learn. That's how I had such a great career. Um, I learned from other nurses don't talk to family members and patients unless you're teaching them something. Um, if you didn't document it, you didn't do it. <laughs> and <laughs> care is only as good as the person giving it. You can good, get good care in a tent. Okay. So um, how have you used the knowledge um, you've obtained during nursing, you know? Well, I was able to get out of the direct bedside nursing and work with some great insurance companies. I learned from working inside the insurance company things that it takes to make sure your claim gets paid. And then I also worked outside of the um, doctor's office and seen, you know, things that they do to make sure they can even receive their payments. Oh, so I kind of learned how insurance companies work. I was able to start my own, uh, it's a community service. I don't expect pay for the things that I've done. I do it from the kindness of my heart. But during the pandemic, I started a um, company where I would take people to and from the vaccine clinics and make sure they got to their second appointment. So I was very instrumental in my community doing that. Um, and then tuition you know, tuition reimbursement, I was able to go back to school. I'm currently attending two colleges and making time as a full-time employee. And those are the things that I've been able to do. Great. That I've been is able so, to improve myself. That's so, so um, inspiring. Um, so tell me, what opportunities have you taken advantage of while being a nurse? Um. I've definitely taken care of the flexible scheduling. Um, having, <laughs> I don't blame you. <laughs> having a job that isn't so demanding. Um, like I said last interview, picking a job that I feel like I can handle during the 12 hours or eight hours I'm there. I always talk about traveling nursing because it's so wonderful. You get to go to all these places, make a nice amount of money and come back home. And, uh, really just furthering my education, learning from the bottom and trying to climb to the top. Mm -hmm. And I learned you have to go back to college and get those credentials to do that. Absolutely. So I hear all the time on the news, uh, the nursing shortage. You know, you hear all over the country that there's a nursing shortage. So how has the uh, nursing shortage affected your job? You're gonna find this really funny 
but the nursing shortage, it has had no direct effect on my employment because my job is secure because they're already short. So they can't afford to let me go. So I have job security, but on the downside, I have an increased workload. Um, there's a lot of days I leave, I come back. I got to finish things up from yesterday because someone may have um, not had the time to do it. Um, had to deal with a lot of my coworkers calling in from feeling overworked and things of that. And just, you know, increased workload is really what I'm seeing. But if you work at a good place, you'll have staff. Now there's feast and famine out there. Some facilities aren't really experiencing a shortage and some are. Mm -hmm. So that's how it affected me. So um, this is the one um, I'm really dying to hear the answer. Me and um, my um, co-host, Cena, yeah. um, the purse nurse. Ooh, you know talk, I had to say this talk to me so I can listen alright <laughs> so the purse nurse is a nurse that's in the profession of nursing strictly for the money these mm -hmm. nurses can do 16 to 20 hours a day they make their schedule they're not on staff anywhere they're just moving around getting the money which is great but for us that are on staff when we have the purse nurse come work with us, she don't get a lot done or he don't get a lot done. Like, and as nurses, we know what we're responsible for. But say your mom has a red eye today and I'm your purse nurse. Mm -hmm. That red eye gonna be red to tomorrow because mm. that staff nurse gonna come back and have to get that treated. And that is why the purse nurse is not really a great, aspect of nursing it's okay to get the money but you got to make sure you're doing your job and taking care of these people don't be so much about the money and how you can travel how you can wear these tight little cute uniforms and just come in there because you make your own schedule get some things done and that's right. all i can say about purse nurse yeah I'm i would, I would also be cons uh, concerned about the level of the quality of care you know just if they're out for the money you know how focused are they going to be on actually caring for your loved one? So um, I want to ask one more question, and then uh, my co-host wants to ask a question around uh, union. Um, give me your message to uh, single mothers that's looking at you and don't have a clue on how to uh, start their career. And then we have one more question to close out. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, my message to the single mothers would be that, Success starts with you. There aren't any handouts in this world. And in order to be a success or a successful person, it starts with your thinking. You have to change your level of thinking in order to become successful. You have to think, you have to set plans, you have to meet deadlines, you have to be busy. Nothing's going to come to us sitting home waiting for someone to take care of us. You have to go out there and do it for yourself Absolutely. and do it for your kids and set a good example for your kids because you are the only one they're looking at. Absolutely. One last question and 10 seconds to answer. Uh -huh. Are you part of a union? 
No, they don't let nurses unionize, but the nurse aides who work under us that we supervise, they are unionized. I'm not going to say every facility that does have unionized nurses, but it ain't common in Michigan. I've been a nurse 23 years and never seen a nursing union. Wow. And would have loved to join one. That is so interesting. Because it's an at-will state. They okay. can let you go because it's at-will. I Wow. That is really interesting. Yeah, really we just heard a labor segment, so we were wondering that. Yes. Not, and not uh, we wanted to know just, you know, what what, you know, how does that apply in the state of Michigan? But anyway, thank you, uh, Tatum. God bless you. Happy holidays you. to you and your family. And you will be back soon. OK, thank you. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me. Bye bye, Stina. Bye, Tatum. Bye. It's been wonderful Happy to have holidays. you. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Bye. We love you. Thank you. Love you, too. Bright from Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of the holidays, we had a wonderful holiday celebration, Interfaith Holiday Justice and Peace Circle at Freedom Square. We have a previous segment of that recordings where H. Bosch Jr., my co-host, had a really wonderful um, saying, uh, fine finishing to our circle. And this is the coverage from Bria Barthel. I'm at the Sanctuary's Holiday Peace and Justice Celebration. And we've got lots of wonderful people here tabling with information on important topics. So if you could start out, tell us who you are, what, what group you're with, and why you're here. All right, so my name is Jimmy Catino, and I am an outreach worker for Snug LLT. And what we do is we work with the community. We work with those that are the highest risk of being shot or shooting somebody, and we try our best to, you know, defuse situations. And can you tell us what Snug stands for? It stands for Should Never Use Guns. Should never use guns. Certainly uh, here in South Central, North Central Troy, that's an important message. What kinds of programs do you have? All right. So some of the things that we do is we have a social worker. And so what the social worker does is, is if a participant needs any help with employment, licenses, then that's what she does. So what we do is we try to get, you know, face-to-face -face with the participants and be able to, you know, take them out of their norm, expose them to things that they usually don't do. And hopefully it opens their eyes. So presenting them with some alternative ways to be creative and to be involved with society. That's, that is correct. That's great. And Snug has a number of people here. So, sir, you are? Calvin Alexander. And what is your role with Snug? I'm an outreach worker. So you would be one of the people that um, clients coming to Snug would work directly with? Yes, participants would work directly with me. Participants, that sounds so much better. And you, ma'am? Hi, my name's Anna Kavandervine. I'm the social worker for Snug. And what kinds of issues do people come with to you with? Mm -hmm. So I work both with the participants who are at the highest risk of shooting someone and also the families of uh, folks who have either been injured or killed. And so we provide trauma-informed counseling as well as case management services to try and stabilize their environment. Great. Well, thank you all for your work. And I'm going to move on now. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Snug is very clear that they want everybody acknowledged. Sir, you are. My name is Raheem Brown, the supervisor at Troy Snug. Supervisor, no wonder the others wanted to be sure I talked to you. How many people do you have at Snug? All together is uh, six of us, if I'm correct. 
And do you do services 24-7 or just certain hours, or how does that work? Um, so we're on call 24-7 if a, sh a shooting or a homicide takes place. But um, other services you need, you may need, we're, um, we have certain hours of operation. Um, those days will be Tuesday through Tuesday is 11 to 7, and Wednesday to Saturday, 12 to 8. And for people to get more information about SNUG, where can they go? Um, we have a Facebook page. It's called uh, LLTY Troy Snug. So if you guys want to know some of the things we're doing, like at events and stuff like that, check out our Facebook page. You can get more information about a lot of stuff we're doing in the community from there as well. LLTY Troy Snug. Yes, ma'am. Trinity Alliance. Thank you so much. You're welcome. We've moved on to another table, and this is for the fish market. It doesn't have fish, it's an arts program. And representing the fish market is? My name is Meg Jala. And Meg, tell us something about the kinds of activities you do at the fish market and where it is. Okay, so the fish market is located at 2952 6th Avenue um, in Troy, New York. And we are run through the Arts Center of the Capital Region, and we have a program called North Central Troy Crease, where we provide free art and wellness workshops and programs to the community. And you yourself are a resident artist, right? Correct. Myself and Dee Collin are the resident artists in the space. What is your medium? What kind of art do you create? So I do multidisciplinary art, but my primary art form is performance-based art, so film, theater, gallery, performance, installations. So it's not just uh, physical in terms of I see you've got ribbons and pencils and markers, but also movement activities. Yes, absolutely. We have all of that. Terrific. And I appreciate you being here. Thanks so much. Thank you. Besides the community organizations, we have longtime volunteers here at the sanctuary also helping out with the holiday celebration. And here's one of them. Tell us who you are and what you're doing here. Hi, I'm Nancy Weber, and um, I'm at the Gratitude Wreath Table. <laughs> and we have a, a beautiful four-foot four foot tall, four-foot circular um, wreath that I made. And we're asking people what they're grateful for at this time of year. And there are pieces of birch bark cut out in all different shapes that you can write what you're grateful for and then place it on the wreath. And will the wreath be staying out here? Yes, yes. the wreath will stay in Freedom Square. Terrific. Thank you so much for your work here and with so much else, Nancy. Okay. And thank you. And Bria, what are you grateful for? And would you like to fill one out? I will come back and fill it out. But one of the things I'm grateful for is being able to work with such wonderful other volunteers here. Right. Thank you. Another uh, table here at the holiday celebration is Mothers Out Front. And uh, can you tell us your name and what Mothers Out Front is all about? Sure, so my name is Elisha Bacon and I'm a New York organizer with Mothers Out Front and we are a nonprofit advocacy organization focused on climate justice. Um, a couple of our big initiatives are uh, funding the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act that was passed in 2019. So we work with New York Renews uh, to get that funded and we have a package of six bills that we're going to be advocating for the next year. Um, but we're also part of Renewable Heat Now, it's working on the All Electric Buildings Act and then we are also part of... And that's Renewable Heat Now? Yes, Renewable Heat Now, um, which is focused on buildings. So in New York State, our 
biggest um, energy uh, emissions sector is in buildings. And so we want to uh, get the All Electric Building Act passed to make sure that new buildings are built with renewable energy sources. Um, we are also part of the uh, public banking coalition in New York State to uh, get a framework established that municipalities and localities could uh, start public banks and we could take our money out of Wall Street and put it into our own banks that we could have oversight of and make sure that everyone has access to loans if they want to start a business or own a home. Um, and so those are some of our big initiatives. Uh, our goal is essentially climate justice and environmental justice and making sure that as we transition our economy um, that we are centering racial equity in that. Great, thank you so much for being here and thank you for your work. Thank you. That was Brie Barthel reporting from the last weekend's Peace and Justice Circle at Freedom Square. And we have some wonderful documentation. H. Bosch Jr., you were one of the photographers. Absolutely. Yeah, and uh, more coverage. Find all that on our website, mediasanctuary.org. Our next guest is Bill Bastock, is CEO and founder of Itchy, It Could Happen to You, one of the nation's leading criminal justice reform organizations. Welcome, Bill. Good to see you again, my friend. And uh, I look forward to uh, having some dialogue. With yes, you. likewise. So good to see you, too. Uh, and um, before we get started, hi to your lovely wife, Terry, and your mother-in-law, Miss Roseanne. Okay? <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Tell them I both I said hello. Um, now, before we get started... Um, i like to introduce my audience to you. What is your background and why did you start Itchy? Well, <clears throat> I uh, started It Could Happen to You uh, when it happened to me. I was uh, put in a position in which I was uh, falsely accused of raping a 16-year-old girl in a shed. Uh, this accusation uh, was made in 2008, uh, and it took me a year to get to trial. I eventually was acquitted. Uh, fortunately, I didn't serve any time in prison, but I learned a lot about how the criminal justice system uh, really pins the defendant or the accused against the law. Absolutely. And the tremendous imbalance uh, in terms of the resources of the prosecutor, the resources of the defense community. And I had to retain a good lawyer uh, because I was, I was previously a public official. I served in the Monroe County Legislature up, up here in upstate New York. I was a town councilman. Uh, so I was high profile. And, and targeted. Uh, well, more or less a trophy case for a DA if they put you away because then they can use it to further their career. Okay. Uh, these these high-profile cases. And uh, it, the reason it took me a year to get to trial is because the prosecution was attempting to withhold evidence, which is known as discovery, that my attorney needed uh, to assure that I wasn't sent away for 20, 25 years for something that I had nothing to do with. And the uh, type of information that uh, was attempting to be withheld was uh, diaries, diary entries, in which this girl predicted the date and time that I was going to rape her. Um, 
medical records, uh, which indicate that there were some emotional issues. Uh, so, and at one point during my trial, my attorney told me, you know, Bill, you've got a lot of experience in Albany. I'd worked for the New York State Legislature too as well. And uh, maybe you might be able to just change this because what they're trying to do to you, they try and do to a lot of other people. Great. And Bosch, I know they, you know, you, your story I'm sure has been told. Yes. And uh, that's how you and I met. Yep. And thanks uh, to your organization, you gave me the opportunity. So, so, so one of the things I, I, uh, I quickly decided to do after I was acquitted uh, in 2009, in May 2009, by a jury uh, that met for less than two hours. Uh, th that's how weak the evidence was. I looked at some of the gaps in the criminal justice reform movement and recognized that really the prosecutors not only are the most powerful people in the criminal justice system, but they're some of the most powerful people in the state capitals. Absolutely. So we got so, a lot more we, we want to unpack and we're going to have you back. So, so let me so mm -hmm. so that's why I formed it could happen to you Great. to really bring create a broad coalition uh, that would bring about change. And a remarkable job you have done up until this point. So how did you meet Jeff Deskovich, which we both know, and who um, will be rotating? He'll, he'll be uh, rotating with you on the show. And how do you work together, you and Jeff? Uh, well, I met Jeff Deskovic uh, back in uh 2010, it was 2010 or 2011, uh, shortly after I met with uh, the head of the New York State Public Defenders Association, Jonathan Gudess, who was recently passed. But uh, I met with uh, Jonathan to get some, uh, some coaching on criminal justice reform. And he said, you know, there's an exonery out there, Jeffrey Deskovic, who served 16 years and he wants to do pretty much the same thing that you're doing. You guys should probably hook up with one another. Mm. Uh, and, and we did, uh, Jeff, uh, Jeff and I talked on the phone uh, and he came up here and, uh, I believe it was, uh, September of, uh, 2010. And, uh, we bonded quickly and we were like, brothers right now absolutely and, uh, very closely uh jeff has really helped bring exonerees into our coalition uh and falsely convicted uh, falsely prosecuted people as yourself and myself so we have this unique coalition that really includes victims uh who can tell their stories and who can bring their own experiences within the legal system. Great. So this is what I really want um, you to speak on. Um, what is the current legislation that Itchy is working on in New York and what is its status? What's the status? Well, uh, our uh, the most important piece of legislation that we got passed, probably the most important, important piece of legislation that's been put in place in, uh, in terms of criminal justice reform in New York in the past 20, 25 years is the establishment of a state commission on prosecutorial conduct. Yes, indeed. Uh, this will be an independent, transparent commission 
Uh, it's the first commission in the country. Uh, Bosch, you were part of that campaign. Uh, the governor signed a law in 2018 uh, establishing the commission. It took us four years to get the commission in place. The DAs fought it tooth and nail, uh, but we won that long battle. Uh, now there'll be an independent commission that we hope will be up and running uh, this coming year. Uh, the governor, uh, uh, Governor Hochul, put $1.75 million in the budget for it. That's to fund staff with the expertise to investigate prosecutors who are not playing by the rules. Great. Um, so what is Itchy working on in Pennsylvania? And what is the current status of that um, let me just uh, Let me just mention two other things we're working on in New York. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> One is the <coughs> Challenging Wrongful Conviction Act, which will enable anybody who's in prison who believes that they have a strong case that they were wrongfully convicted to file with legal assistance from the state with a public defender or a lawyer, what's known as a 440 to have a review of their case. Okay. Um, we would be the first state in the nation to do that. Uh, and then that's going to open up a floodgate. Okay. Uh, of really looking at, because we know, there's more innocent men and women in prison than have been exonerated. And we've got to get to that base. Okay. In Pennsylvania, to answer your question on Pennsylvania, in Pennsylvania, we're working on what's known as just compensation for the wrongfully convicted. Pennsylvania is one of only 12 states in the country does not, that does not provide any fiscal compensation or social service compensation for exonerates for the wrongfully convicted after their convictions are overturned or reversed. Mm. They are literally thrown out on the streets with no help at all. We have a bill they were working on that would provide a dollar amount for every year that a exoneree served wrongfully behind bars a dollar amount for every year that the liberty was stolen. Okay. Uh, this is an important bill, and we think we have a very good chance after a three- and four-year battle of getting this passed this year. Uh, the House in Pennsylvania has gone Democrat for the first time in 12 years. Yes, it has. Uh, led, uh, by, with, led by a woman. And we'll be able to... Uh, I, I think get a bill passed in the House now, <clears throat> and we have some Republican sponsors in the Republican Senate uh, that have indicated their support for the bill. Okay, so so let me move on to this bill because there's some other things I want want to get out there. Okay. Um, are there any upcoming events for Itchy that you would like to share with us in the audience? And if so, how can you how can they attend? Okay, well. Uh, in, in California, we have a campaign to establish a California Commission on Cop, uh, Prosecutorial Conduct. It'll only be the second one in the country, uh, but it's appropriate because California is fourth in the nation in wrongful convictions, and they have people sitting on death row who might be innocent. So on March 24th uh, this year, we are doing a virtual summit. Uh, of anybody who wants to participate, but it will uh, be focused on criminal justice reform leaders 
from across the state of Pennsylvania. We did one. Uh, I, we uh, did a summit in 2019 uh, that was attended by over 180 ju uh, criminal justice reform leaders from across the state and, and California. We're going to repeat that. Uh, it will give justice reform groups the opportunity to talk about what they're working on, and it will build momentum and support for the California Commission on Prosecutorial Conduct. It's Great. March 24th. It will be on our website. That's my that's website. my next question. Let's 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 go to that. How can people get involved? What is the itchy website, and how can they get involved in um you know joining the coalition? Talk to me about that. It's uh, it's it's fairly simple. The itchy website is it could happen to you. That's with the numeral two, two the number two. Mm -hmm. It could happen to you. Dot org, and if you go on, and you ask to be added to our newsletter list, our database, you'll then be in informed of all of our activities. We have a one weekly Wednesday watch on justice. We are now on the 603rd consecutive weekly newsletter. We want you to receive this. It'll keep you involved and it'll keep you aware of what's going on in the world of criminal justice reform across the country. Great, Bill. Well, listen, um, we appreciate uh, Itchy agreeing to be a regular contributor. We're going to have you back because there's so much more we want to talk about, as well as um, Jeff Deskovich will be on the show next uh, month to talk about um, his journey and his fight in criminal justice. I, 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 I would just like to say one thing, one quick thing in closing. Here. Go ahead. Uh, the, the prosecutors, district attorneys associations go to Albany whenever they want and the taxpayers dying to kill justice reform. Groups like It Could Happen to You, we have to rely on donations. It has been a plum pleasing pleasure to have you on. You know you mean so much to me and what you're doing out there. And um, I look and, forward and, to it. And it's, it's great seeing you again, Bosch. Uh, we're going to be having a similar summit in New York. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometime in March, we want you there. Oh, great. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. Happy holidays, Bill. All right? You too. Happy you holidays to everybody. Okay. Okay. That was Bill Bastock of Itchy, It Could Happen to You. Uh, he'll be back on in the future. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm your host, H. Bosch Jr., and I'm your other host, Sina Bazila-Hickey, also engineer. We want to thank the volunteers who made this episode possible. Contributors are Mark Dunley, Willie Terry, Bria Barthel, and this fabulous H. Bosch Jr. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community, for the community, and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. And listen, we want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at mediasanctuary.org or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in. 
weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate you listening. I'd like to leave you with this. Walk in peace. Give with grace. Speak with wisdom. Live with love. From our family to yours, happy holidays.